Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nafisa Andrabi, the host of the channel. Today, we're joined by Sahar Salot, someone whose work I've been reading since my early graduate school days. Sahar is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Simmons University. Her research examines how Muslim Americans experience racialization in the United States. Today, we'll be talking about her book, Forever Suspect, Racialized Surveillance of Muslim Americans in the War on Terror. Sahar, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a real privilege. Um, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us just a little bit of your, about yourself. That is, you know, where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became interested in Muslim racialization and surveillance. Yeah. Um, so I, I was born in Kansas, actually, and I grew up in Texas. And um, I've always been interested in you know, topics around race and racism, being uh, Pakistani, uh, Muslim American, growing up in um, Fort Worth, Texas. And so when I went to college, uh, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, and I just, just gravitated towards classes on race and racism. And at that time, when I was in, um, at the University of Texas, and I was doing my undergraduate degree, I, there wasn't a lot of like Middle Eastern studies or um, classes on what I think we're seeing more on around, you know, Arab populations or Asian studies or American studies. So I, um, I was just really interested in sociology. I took a couple sociology classes, decided to major in it, but then I minored in African American studies. So I was just always interested in race and racism in the United States. And it wasn't until the events of 9-11, because I knew that I had always had racialized experiences uh, due to my skin tone and the way I present and, and, you know, just the, the types of experiences uh, my family and I had growing up. But it wasn't until 9-11 that I started to really want to understand, well, how are Muslims um, experiencing racism? Because right after 9-11, um, what happened is we saw that Muslims, there was this backlash against Muslims. So, you know, everybody was calling it this backlash against Muslims. And so um, just with my interest in race and racism, I wanted to see what was happening with the Muslim population in terms of their experiences with race and racism, which is how I kind of um, decided to study, uh, you know, Muslims and and the aftermath of 9-11. Yeah, I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we just I with my with my family, I just watched the Mauritanian, and uh, it was I had forgot. I think it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for me to forget what I'm not seeing every single day in in Guantanamo Bay, for example, and just you know that there's sort of active Muslim racialization happening and the sort of policing of Muslim bodies that's happening in that space um, still yeah. to this day. And it was sort of a shocking reminder of that. Yeah, I need to watch that. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I definitely will. Yeah, it's it's also um, 
sort of complicated because being uh, Pakistani American and uh, Arab Americans and our history of race and racism in the United States, I think the other part that really um, that that I was really interested in is when we in sociology, when I was in graduate school, most of the scholarship was really looking at, you know, African-Americans and white experiences with racism, which makes sense in the United States with the history of slavery. And immigration scholarship really looked at, you know, populations through the lens of assimilation, excuse me. And and that was something that I did not find particularly useful um, for for what I was uh, experiencing or or what I was um, studying. So it's really looking at the United States in terms of how do these newer immigrant groups and different groups, how do they experience racism in the United States? Can we apply the stuff that we, um, you know, can we can we say that um, somebody who is experiencing racism, we have to compare it to the African-American experience when we know it's contextually incredibly different. And in the United States, you know, not to, um, it's very important to note that there are African-American and Black Muslims. So, you know, I was just really interested in the complications around race and, and ethnicity and these identities and, and what was happening. So... Um, just from my own experiences, noting that 9-11, there was a big shift in it, <clears throat> in experiences. So I had had these racialized experiences, but that 9-11 changed them. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, so on that, could you tell us a little bit about how you came into this book project specifically? So you were interested in race and racism. You knew that you wanted to unpack and think about, think more critically about the Muslim racialization experience and also how it fits into sociology sort of at the intersection of race and ethnicity um, and sort of this more immigration focus. Um, So how did you, how did Forever Suspect come about? Um, Both, you know, there's interviews in the book, there's history in the book. Um, How did you sort of come into this, this project and the way it, um, the way it looks today? Yeah. So, so again, it was really, when I was, this is part of my dissertation. This was my dissertation project. And then I did interviews after I finished my dissertation and got my job as an assistant professor at um, Simmons in Boston. And so, um, you know, it was really difficult in a lot of ways because I knew that Muslims were experiencing something that was very different. I knew that a Muslim identity was, um, you know, being Muslim, people were, um, having newer experiences, not that a Muslim identity was newly racialized because of 9-11 or the war on terror. There's, there's a lot of literature that shows that this has been going on historically, particularly Edward Said's book, Orientalism, examines that in, you know, the epistemological, how, how knowledge has been constructed about the Arab world, um, you know, and, and what that means, like how the West could, you know, constructs the this imaginary Arab world and, and why they do that. And it's about, you know, justifying colonialism and, and all these other things. So Muslims, you know, the idea that Muslims were newly racialized, that, that, that is not what, um, that's not what I argue or, or what I think happened, but what did happen after nine 11 was that, um, you know, a Muslim identity was racialized in ways that became institutionalized in the United States via these laws and policies that were put that were enacted in in the war on terror under the name of the war on terror and the global war on terror 
So I was just really interested. This all kind of, you know, I unpacked all this after, you know, I went to my committee and I was like, I'm, I'm interested in how Muslims are experiencing racism. And um, at that time, because of the scholarship that I had read, um, because of the ways in which I think that, you know, we've historically viewed race and racism as being mostly about pigmentation and skin tone, um, you know, we did sort of decided that I wouldn't um, look at African-American Muslims in, in this study. So I was going to limit it to South Asian and Arab Muslims due to this notion that I had, which was not correct, uh, you know, in the beginning when I first started um, doing these studies was that I thought skin tone would matter. So the lighter skin tone you are, and if you're, you know, if you're from a Pakistani or um, Egyptian or Jordanian, you know that there's a range in skin tone, just like any other, you know, racial or ethnic group. And so would lighter skin um, South Asian Muslims, would they be um, less likely to experience this backlash or targeting um, for being Muslim versus somebody who's darker in skin tone. I'm, you know, darker in skin tone. I do not pass for, for white. And so I was, I, I was thinking in these kinds of ways, which my, what happened when I started to interview people was that I started to shift the way that I, that I saw what was happening. So I really wanted to, to look at like, well, how do we understand the Muslim experience within a racial framework? How can we look at this in terms of being about racism and not being, uh, you know, narrowly about religious persecution? So I decided I would interview South Asian and Arab Muslim Americans. And um, part of the, the other thing that I had been reading was after 9-11, there were a lot of really good books that came out really quickly after 9-11 or within five to six years that looked at what was happening with immigrants and non-citizens. So I was interested in, well, how does citizenship, how do Muslim um, Americans who have the protection of citizenship, what are they experiencing? Because a lot of the, um, the laws that, that were put into place after 9-11 were specifically targeting non-citizens. So it was really trying to kind of look at, you know, our notions of race are really about presentation. So skin tone is one of the ways in which people are easily identified as, you know, a racialized group. So is skin tone playing a role? Are lighter skin Muslims passing, you know, um, and then what are the impacts of these laws and policies that I knew had impacted immigrants because they were targeting non-citizens? What, what did they do in terms of um, targeting American citizens? So, uh, what I found, though, so in, in the book was that regardless of skin tone, there were these other ways in which <clears throat> Muslims are racialized. So um, certainly the most identifiable religious signifier is the hijab. So Muslim women, regardless of skin tone, they could, you know, they could be they could pass for white. But once they, you know, once they're in the hijab, that strips them of the um their identity as as white so they're marked as someone who doesn't belong here they're marked as a foreigner they're marked as the enemy of the state um by by their fellow citizens and so um i found that race you know these notions that i had of race and um in the united states were it, it sort of um, complicated those notions that i had which 
um, you know, ultimately is, is what I wanted to show in the book is that, you know, our notions of race and racism in the United States are constantly shifting and they're not static. They're, they're very fluid. And um, by looking at how a religious identity uh, became racialized, you can see how the shifts in racial experiences um, occur, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And, and thank you for sharing those things. I have, uh, I'm thinking about so many different things and I'll, I'll try not to, um, not try not to babble, but one of the, one of the points that you made, um, so, okay. So you were saying that, you know, so it's a, so there's, there's perception and we're thinking about skin tone and in the U S um, particularly around this black, white binary, uh, we give, we put a lot of weight on this idea of skin tone as how we, infer, um, or, you know, individuals race and sort of how we place people on this sort of racial hierarchy, racial ladder and, or, um, the sort of how stratification happens. So if it's not skin tone, and if you also don't have these, um, overt markers or signifiers of race, like the hijab, then how is the perception or how are individuals being, racialized in the sense that how are they even being perceived as Muslim? And I asked this, you know, and this is, um, this is, I mean, this is something that I've been curious about and thinking about since I, I started grad school, right? Is so when we don't have these obvious markers of, um, of the hijab and, you know, or signifiers of religion, but we know that, you know, religion and language and um, nativity are things that also relate to, you know, skin tone, hair texture, a bone, uh, bone structure and all these things that sort of combine in, in this sort of iterative way to um, construct what we think of as race in the U.S. Um, how does how does that work when we don't have these overt markers? Right. So <clears throat> to be clear, I just want to make sure that you know, and I I, I say this when I give talks a lot um, that I do think skin tone obviously matters. That 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 you know, the argument is not that we should say that skin tone is no longer the way in which we're racialized. It absolutely is. Right. But when your question is a good one, like, so somebody's not wearing the hijab, how are they experiencing, you know, racialization if they don't, you know, perhaps they're passing. I had a lot of, you know, people tell me, you know, um, I've asked them, are you identifiable as Muslim in, in, to strangers in public spaces? And if they were, you know, lighter in skin tone, they'd say, no, you know, People think I'm Greek or Mediterranean, but they, you know, they don't assume I'm Muslim. But the ways in which, you know, I found that Muslims were experiencing this regardless of wearing the hijab or not is through um, a name, for example. So Muslim men who, um, you know, have Muslim names, regardless of their faith or, you know, how religious they are, had specific experiences um, because of their Muslim name marked them um, by the state uh, as a potential threat. And so, you know, it's, it's, you know, in airports is, I have a whole chapter called Flying While Muslim. And in U.S. airports, when Muslim men that I interviewed, and this happened to all of them, though the few that it didn't happen to hadn't flown since 9-11, um, they had a period of time in which they would go to, you know, check in for a flight. They'd go to the self check-in kiosk and put their credit card in and uh, they would get a message saying that, um, 
that they they needed to go speak to a ticket agent and they couldn't get their ticket printed out at that kiosk. And so when they go to the um, ticket agent, they were asked a series of questions about where they were going, why they were traveling there, and then they would get their ticket printed out. So it was their Muslim name that, um, you know, sort of triggered the surveillance of them in airports. And so the argument is that there are all these other ways in which people are marked and racialized beyond just skin tone. That skin tone is certainly important and something that we would never abandon as saying that that didn't matter with racialization. So um, for another example is there were plenty of Muslim women who did not wear the hijab who were darker in skin tone, who, who recognized that they have historically throughout their lives in the United States had racialized experiences but they weren't necessarily marked in the same ways as, you know, somebody who wears the hijab, um, who, who is, it's just such an identifiable signifier with Islam. So anyone who wears the hijab was marked in such ways in public spaces and in, and in airports as well, which I, in the book, I talk about the, the gendered differences and how Muslim men versus Muslim women um, are marked, but, you know, certainly they were having, they, they recognized that they had dealt with discrimination or racism throughout their lives because of their skin tone, but they, you know, were not recognizable in public spaces as necessarily Muslim, you know, um, whereas the women who wear the hijab were. So the argument is that there are complicated ways in which race and racism operate in society. And some of it can be language. It can be, it can be skin tone. It certainly is skin tone, but it's also, religious signifiers that you wear, it's your name, you know, it's, you know, your nationality, your nation of origin, that all of these things um, can, are, are part of the ways in which people experience racism. So, you know, the argument in the book is that we need to recognize, you know, um, all these other things that result in race and racism. And certainly, other scholars have looked at this, like Eduardo Benia Silva has looked at, you know, the Latin Americanization thesis, where he says that we're a triracial um, society, not a biracial one, where he comes up with, you know, honorary whites at the top, uh, or whites at the top, honorary whites in the middle and collective black at the bottom. And he places different, you know, um, ethnic groups in, into this um, racial hierarchy and, and with saying that people move in and out of these you know, of these spaces or whatever, but, um, and, and he talks about cultural racism in, in his, in his, um, work on colorblind racism. So, so it's, you know, it's not necessarily a new concept, but it's something that I think that in a lot of the scholarship and also in the public's imagination, race and racism is really, um, we have limited understandings of it. So even for the people that I interviewed, if, you know, if I were to say, is this about racism? You know, in their in a lot of their minds, it really racism is really about being black in the United States, and it's it's not about being um, South Asian or Arab. That um, that was something that um, people still see race as really about this black and white, um, you know, interactions and experiences. And I, I, you know, I, my my work is trying to say like, well, there you know, we need to really expand the ways in which we um, analyze and, and talk about race in, in the United States. Yeah, 
that that, I mean, that's a, uh, an important project and, and one that I, I, I definitely early on in grad school, um, you know, realized that this sort of the strength of the black, white binary and, and sort of how the uh, divisions between um, studying race, studying immigration um, were kind of constructed and, and how thinking about populations that fell sort of outside of the traditional Census Bureau categories for race, um, figuring out how to study them within the framework of race and racism was really challenging um, and yeah, what continues yeah. to be a little challenging. And if I can add something, one, yeah. one thing that is really interesting, because you brought up the, you know, the groups that don't fall into, you know, where are they on the U.S. Census? Pew has done this amazing um, thing. I don't know, if, you know, if you've seen it, but people should certainly um, Google it. But they have uh, like a timetable uh, and it's a great visual where they show. Yes. Oh, my God. I love this. I send it to everybody. Right. And so if you look at that, it's like the history of racial categories according to the U.S. Census. And once you see how much it changes over decades, and you see even Hindu on there as a racial classification at some point, and then it's taken off. So that to me, like that really gets across what I think of, you know, what I know I'm trying to show, which is that racial category shift over time. And you have to understand why they shift over time, like, you know, taken within a specific context. So I'm I'm not arguing that Muslim is a racial category, but that religion in this point in time, when you have, you know, policies that are aimed at making, you know, the country and even on a global scale um, safe in the name of terrorism. And when you closely associate terrorism with Muslim, a Muslim identity, that um, that identity further racializes people, it shifts their, their experiences with racism. Um, so I think that is, is a really great resource because it just shows how, how, you know, and, and if you look at the laws and policies of who was, you know, historically trying to gain access to citizenship and the ways in which the courts were determining, no, you can't be a citizen because you're not culturally associated enough with European culture or AKA whiteness, that that really goes to show you that, there are other things that get racialized besides just the ways in which um, our skin tone. So, um, so yeah, I, everyone should look at that. No, oh, thank you for that reminder. I'll, I'll probably even put a link to it in the little blog post that comes along with this. Um, it is, yeah, I've sent it to a lot of uh, non-sociologists or like non-race ethnicity studying folks, uh, especially in, in recent years to just really... Um, yeah, to just really demonstrate exactly what you're saying, which is the shifting nature of race in the U.S. and and you know how reliant we become on these census categories within sort of generations, um, in terms of being really definitive and really fixed. But in fact, when you take a more historical approach, just how fluid they've been and how kind of wildly fluid they've been. When you when you look at some of those years, you're you know, and I, and I talk a lot about Hispanic and half Hispanic. As a as a ethnicity, as the only ethnicity that we acknowledge in the U.S. Census, um, is is also pretty recent. Uh, you know, it's only in like the last 30, 40 years. Um, I, I I so okay. So I, I really want I want to talk about um, you know all the sort of dimensions of surveillance uh, and um, that you that you bring up in the book and some of these gendered effects. But one of the things I wanted to just quickly touch on before we move on to that is. Um, 
you know, I'm curious about, so you talk a little bit about sort of South Asian and Arab identity and how that's shifting or how does that merge into this broader Muslim identity. And, you know, there's been literature on, you know, what is American Islam and, you know, are, you know, what is, what does it mean to be Muslim American? Um, and, and one of the things that I've thought a, a bit about, you know, also is when Muslim immigrants come into the U.S. and are sort of, um, you know, encouraged, forced, whatever, to adopt a U.S. racial identity, what, you know, how does that erase sort of the histories of um, colonization that, may, that they may have experienced? And also, how does that erase the ongoing, what we know about the imperial projects happening across the globe? But then when you step onto, you know, U.S. soil, all of a sudden you have to adopt this U.S. racial identity, which may or may not reflect anything about your actual lived immigrant experience um and sort of erases the you know i don't know it's just like it's like that you know the imperial projects that we're seeing around the around the globe are extensions of you know the u.s carceral state that we see here and i think that a lot of your work on sort of what you're talking about surveillance kind of starts to touch on that um and i don't know i just i'm curious about if you have any thoughts on that yeah, that's a really good question. I think lately I've been thinking about it uh, much in a different way than I did when I wrote the book. And that's that's sort of what happens. You write a book and then you're like, oh, I now I've read all this other literature and I wish I could go back and amend some of the <laughs> stuff in the book. Um, but because I think a lot of people are looking at um, U.S. empire, right? And so how 9-11 really um, sort of pushed that forward, this notion of U.S. empire, when we typically think about colonialism in terms of Europe and um, the histories around slavery and things like that. Whereas, you know, I I teach a class called Race, Gender, and Empire, and have them read this um, book by Jody Bird, which looks at how what we've made invisible in the United States is that it's not post you know, the that the United States, you know, has this history of colonialism that we often don't talk about in terms of indigenous populations. That's been erased a lot um, from not just the scholarship, but the way we think about it. So, you know, colonialism and imperialism are definitely coming um, much more to my mind as I think about the next few projects that I'm working on. But in terms of like, how do immigrant populations when they come to the United States, how do they adapt and adopt the racialized social system in the United States? And, you know, in terms of leaving behind that imperial, you know, project, I, that's a good question. And I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how to respond to that because uh, I can just give like maybe some, a personal response and then another response to how I think they're adapting to the racialized social structure. But in, in the personal is that, you know, my parents um, came to the United States post-1965 as, as highly educated professionals. And um, it wasn't until, um, you know, in, in May, my dad passed away. And, um, and as I've, you know, as I've been thinking about my father and learning more and more about my father's life, which he didn't, he didn't tell me us about growing up that, you know, my parents migrated at a time when the partition of Pakistan and India occurred. My dad was coming from Burma into, into India and then later to 
to Pakistan. And so I have this huge history of, you know, refugees and migration that occurred as a direct result of British imperialism. And, but that history, that memory was almost absent in my life growing up. Um, you know, we, he never talked about it. He never told us about, you know, how his family even was split up and, and they, you know, he was with his mother and his father was with his older, um, older brothers because of his age. And, you know, just an, an incredible history that was deeply tied to imperialism. And same for my mother. I, I think my mother's family talked a little bit more about it, but um, but that that was absent in my in my upbringing was, you know, now as I'm thinking about this project, thinking about my new project, thinking about my father, like learning more about his childhood through his through my cousins and 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 things like that. I'm starting to question, like, why why was that erased so much? And 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 I don't really have the the complete answer. Um, I I imagine, you know, there's a lot of a lot of trauma that goes on with all of that, but, but I don't really have that answer, but it's definitely there. And it's a great question about how does that translate to the U S experience and something that I feel like we're not thinking enough about. And I want to pay more attention to in terms of like how the, you know, the South Asian, including Indian and Pakistani and, and Arab population comes to the United States. I think they, you know, they, they came, they were, you know, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 was, you know, connected to the civil rights movement. And, but what happened, you know, is that that population comes into the United States because of the civil rights, you know, movement. This is highly influential in this immigration law and policy that was historically exclusionary to these populations. And um, they enter into a racialized hierarchy in which they're trying to distance themselves from um from from blackness so there's a lot of you know um you know they the the professional particularly the professional and certainly not all um south asian immigrants to the united states but post 1965 we see you know a highly professional highly educated group coming into the united states and gaining access to neighborhoods that um, historically African-Americans and currently have not had access to through discriminatory housing laws and policies through racial residential segregation. And so um, this is something that like Vilna Vashi-Treitler writes in her book, Ethnic Projects, and I think where Eduardo Benilla Silva's, you know, Latin Americanization thesis is important, but um, all, uh, while, you know, South Asian and um, Arab were racialized in the United States and there is a history of their racialization. And you can look at that and, you know, um, the laws and policies of them trying to fight for citizenship, which was tied to whiteness, that that population that came post 1965 also um, was trying to access more whiteness and um, also adopting anti-blackness as well. So, you know, a Muslim population in the United States is very racially diverse. The largest growing Muslim population is an African-American one, yet there's no true Muslim ummah in the United States. One Muslim community, we're a deeply uh, also a segregated population um, in the United States. And, you know, I'm 
I hope that changes, but I do think that, um, you know, that population coming into the United States, um, you know, was living, some of them were living in the suburbs and um, able to access, you know, the schools that um, historically had been denied to African-Americans and um, participating in, in some of the ma- maintenance of, you know, this racialized segregated society. Now, I, and I, I really don't want to flatten all this, and I know I am, but it is complicated. You have to look at different groups and reasons for migration. So, you know, Palestinians migrating to the United States, um, they're not, they're, they're different groups who are able to access different resources in the United States. But certainly I think that um, part of what is happening in the United States is it's not just, you know, white populations that are upholding whiteness, right, as, as at the top of the racial hierarchy or whatever. But I think that you have to look at how other groups are also maintaining this system of, of white supremacy and and, and this racial hierarchy in the United States. I hope that answered your question. I know I'm right. No, no, that was great. Yeah. And, and absolutely. I mean, I think, I think examining and, and uh, I mean, acknowledging and addressing the spaces where um, the non-black Muslim community has been really complicit in perpetuating um, these harmful systems is really important. And, and I know there are more, there are more folks in, um, in, in my sort of generation of, of graduate students and sociologists who are who are doing more critical work on this and thinking about um, uh, Atiyah Hussein, who just uh, who finished her PhD at UNC a few years ago, who's been doing a lot of work at this intersection, um, and a few other folks. One of and and thank you for um, thank you for sharing that about your about your dad. I'm I'm sorry to hear that he passed, but you know it's it's nice to be able to learn new things about people and to find points of connection. Um, than if they happen through moments of grief. And, and they're reminding me of um, my, my grandfather passed away when I was young, but he was from Kashmir and he, uh, you know, left Kashmir during partition and came to Pakistan. And growing up, that was a really big part of uh, this, the story that we were told. And he, you know, he never, he always wanted us to go back. He never wanted to, uh, you know, claim any land or anything in Pakistan because he always wanted to have his, um, you know, the access to his, his land and his home back in Kashmir. So uh, whatever the policy was that allowed you to sort of trade part and parcel um, for what you left for new, new land in, in Pakistan, he, he never wanted to do. And he always used to tell us that, um, you know, we had a home back in Kashmir. And that was, and I think that there, as I've, you know, when I was younger, it was like, those were just stories. And, you know, those were just things that my parents talked to us about. Um, and as I've gotten older, I think it's something that has been much more painful to think about, which is that there was such a history and there was, um, you know, exactly what you were saying, like so much migration and refugees and a lot of trauma and um, so many different, you know, systems of power and also so much uh, violence on different axes. And that for that to somehow all of a sudden be erased and to be put into the category of, you know, highly educated professional immigrant. Um, I don't know. Sometimes that's just hard to sit with. It's it's just a real incomplete story, I think. And it's that that's something that I and, you know, that example with your grandfather is really powerful. And I think that that's the thing that sometimes feels like there's some sort of disconnect or erasure, even though there's a continuity that needs to be understood. And that's something I'm grappling with right now as well. You know, understanding that like that, it you know, that 
although like in my family, perhaps there was, you know, um, well, you know, I worked hard and I'm here and, you know, a real um, buying into this notion of the American dream because it appeared to be, you know, a real example of it. Like I worked hard, I came here, I did everything, but, um, you know, this is also ignoring some of the ways in which, you know, even if you had this history, you, you, you had this degree, which, you know, enabled you access to the United States and, you know, but also that that history somehow needs to be, that, that the history needs to be tied to the current context as well. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to, to see folks like you and maybe folks like me doing more of that tying in the future. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so you talk in the book about, um, you know, or, or you mentioned earlier also in the interview, right, that post 9-11, what we saw was this institutional surveillance becoming, or sorry, surveillance becoming institutionalized, um, particularly in the U.S. And what, um, and then you talk in the book a little bit about how surveillance wasn't just happening at the institutional level, but also at a more personal level. And you talk about Habermas in the public sphere and what's happening, um, you know, in the private space versus in this public space. Um, so I wondered if you could just share a little bit more about that, some of your thoughts on surveillance, um, some of the, the bigger points and how you're thinking about these different dimensions of surveillance that are that were happening post 9-11. And and maybe you can touch on the extent to which uh, those remain the strength of the, that surveillance today and whether it's um, it's diminishing or whether it sort of continues full throttle. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So what, you know, so what. Initially, when I was conducting these, the, the research, which is, you know, this is kind of the wild thing is like, you know, I'm thinking about skin tone and it wasn't until, um, you know, I came to uh, Boston and started sharing my work with like a, a writing group, which for any graduate student, I did it in grad school and I continue to do it throughout my career. It's the best thing you can do to strengthen your work is just have different people read it and get their thoughts on it. And so what my writing group kind of started to identify was like, you're interested in talking about racialization, but you're also all these testimonies are talking about different ways in which they're surveilled. Right. And so right now surveillance of Muslims might seem like, like not that uh, novel of a concept, but even when I was, um, doing the interviews, that term flying while Muslims wasn't really a, a term quite yet. It was becoming a term um, that, that the ACLU and different, you know, groups were, were starting to use. So, you know, I, I ended up like um, when I was interviewing people, I, I initially didn't ask them about airport experiences. This is in 2009. I'm just like, you know, asking them like, what are your experiences like? Has anything changed since 9 and post 9-11, blah, blah, blah. And I finished the interview and people start saying, well, you know, the one thing you didn't ask me is about airports. And then I was like, okay, what's happening in air airports? And then I start to hear all of these different stories between Muslim men and Muslim women. And, you know, and so the Muslim men, the thing that was, you know, really kind of um, killing me was they, they kept saying there are these S's on my, on my ticket. I don't know what they are, but there are these four S's. I noticed these four S's kept coming up over and over again, these four S's. You know, I'm, I'm I just remember sitting and 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 looking through TSA, um, the Transportation Security Administration, all their policies in like 2012. Like, what are these S's? What are these S's? I cannot figure out like why these men are telling me they have S's on their tickets. Um, and so it really just kind of 
it wasn't until the ACLU started, you know, publishing on their website, this is, you know, these four, this is what these four S's are. It indicated that these men were on um, the selectee list. So it's a different list from the no-fly list that TSA uses. So that kind of um, forced me when I, when I figured out, okay, there's this list, then I had to kind of go back and, and, and look at like, well, what are all these laws and policies that are put into place? Why? Then I, then I started reading about like, you know, what were the laws and policies put into place after 9-11? And so you have the passage of the USA Patriot Act. That's huge in terms of allowing the state um, to surveil in ways that they weren't allowed to before because of a threat of terrorism. And then I saw, you know, the Department of, uh, well, the Transportation Security Administration, they um, formed that. That was the first time the U.S. government had federalized security in airports. And then the Department of Homeland Security was created. And then TSA was, you know, put under the Department of Homeland Security after the fact. So I started to read all of these, you know, law about all these laws and policies that were put into place that essentially um, were there to prevent another terrorist attack from occurring. So, you know, looking at the language in these laws and policies, looking at, um, you know, what others had written about, like the ACLU, about who was being stopped and searched in airports. And I just want to make this very clear because, like, you know, I came across this book after I had written my book, and it was a it was a big shame that I didn't um, read it first. Was Simone Brown. Brown's book, um, Dark Matters, she talks about also airports, but that historically, you know, African-American and specifically Black women have been surveilled in airports. But still, you know, so we have a history of of racial profiling, but the war on terror created all these policies and practices that that were happening in airports that seemed to have um, hyper-targeted Muslims in, in different ways. So not some of them target, you know, people of color more generally. Some of them, like the lists, target um, what I found was a, a Muslim name um, specifically. So the surveillance then, you know, what, what I started to notice was what is the state doing? What are they messaging out? So you know that, you know, we know that Louise Kankar and Homeland Insecurity said, you know, look at all these FBI visits that are happening with the Muslim population in the United States, you know, um, there were all these mass arrests that happened. And then we see security in airports being institutionalized. Um, we see now programs like countering violent extremism, which was put into place under Obama, where, um, you know, like different organizations can get grant money to participate in surveillance of a population that's threat, and you can't see me, but it's in quotation marks of being radicalized and that being mosques or Muslim organizations were getting... Obama! uh, I can't! (laughs) Right. I didn't know that. Wait, can you repeat the name of that? It's countering violent extremism. And under the Obama administration, so Boston's Islamic Center was one of the sites of the initial rollout of, of CVE. And there's an organization, I just want to highlight the Muslim Justice League, who does a lot of work on educating a Muslim population about the surveillance that they're, um, you know, susceptible to, particularly this program, CDE. So, you know, so there are all of these laws. You know, I could go on and on. There's this, there's um, facial recognition, there's, you know, 
um, wiretapping. There's there's all of the surveillance that just, you know, the state had the ability to conduct in the name of protecting themselves. But what the state also did at the same time was message out to its citizens to be on alert for another terrorist attack. So this whole notion there, you know, if we look at African-Americans, they're neighborhood watch groups. There's, you know, there are all these things. Well, there's, if you see something, say something in the United States. So if you live in a city with a public transportation on a bus in an airport and a subway station, it's, if you see something, say something. And I so remember we, when that one came out, we were kids and I remember my parents telling us that, you know, that sign was meant for us. It, and it, and it didn't have an image of us on it, right? Like it doesn't show most of it shows maybe a backpack or what have you. Right. And so what you then have is a, what Foucault kind of, what Foucault talks about is like, you know, it, you don't have to be directly under the watch of a policeman or a FBI agent, but you know, right. You're aware that the surveillance is surrounds you and, and around you. So it's your fellow citizen who's watching you or, or it is you go to the airport and you're, you're told your name matches uh, someone on a list. And, and it's not even that your name is exactly like that name. It's just that it matches enough so that you need to be stopped and searched multiple times in airports before you can get onto the airplane. So this system of surveillance is really, um, it, it's really uh, quite expansive. And so, you know, since I've written the book and what I would love to go back and amend in the book is that this doesn't just target Muslims, that the um, surveillance systems actually in, you know, what we've seen in the name of protecting the United States from um, terrorism has actually had a very large impact on um, Im- immigration detention centers, the war on drugs, the militarization of the war on drugs, that that we can't look at this as in any way separate from other populations that it targets. So, you know, Muslims are targeted um, via these laws and policies, but it's also allowed for, you know, sneak and peek searches. And and the USA Patriot Act has allowed that. So, you know, some policies have been um, terminated or, you know, like there's one called NSEERS, the National Security Entry Exit Registration System. This was put into place under Bush. And what it was, was if you were 16 or over, a non-citizen and a, uh, a man from one of these 25 countries, you had to go register with the state. So you had to go and you were photographed, you were interrogated, and you were fingerprinted. You gave your fingerprints. And 24 of the 25 states were Muslim-majority countries. Only one was not, um, North Korea. So, you know, we, you know, when Obama was leaving office and he's saying, I'm going to you know, I'm going to terminate any register or Trump saying, I'm going to register you. If you had studied this stuff and you knew it, you were like, you've been there. This is not you. You're just making it overt. You know, you're just overtly saying, I'm going to register Muslims. We've been registering Muslims, non-citizen Muslims in this country. Um, So these surveillance, um, what what I, I see, and as I engage in my future projects and projects I'm working on right now, is that there are, you, you know, there are ways in which some of these, some of these surveillance systems, some of these are um, in some ways like the airport security are targeting um, not, you know, are targeting certain Muslims in specific ways, um, which is they've been meant to target non-citizens initially. So you see, if you can think, imagine those 24 countries, a lot of them are, are, are allies of the United States. You know, these aren't all... Um, countries that were engaged in military 
um, action with or whatever. So um, you kind of can see who's being um, told they're on these lists when they go to airports. But that even though, you know, in some spaces they're targeting some populations in some ways, they're very expansive. And until we start recognizing that um, these security systems are deeply racialized, surveillance is deeply racialized in our country, it's not targeting people um, for committing, for being a threat to society, it's targeting them because um, of their racialized identities, because they're Muslim, because they're Black, um, because they're Latinx, you know, Latino, Latina, like these are things that um, we need to really highlight in the United States because um, I fear we'll see um, an expansion of this rather than a, a retreat. And we can see it with COVID actually. So, you know, as much as I, you know, we do need to do some of this contact tracing and stuff, but, you know, at what point do we unleash surveillance um, and, and not rein it back after a crisis is over or whatnot. So um, I think we see surveillance is, is it, the tools of technology. It's a billion dollar industry. It, it's just, in, it's just in increasing. It's expansive. And, um, and certainly I, I'm not fully confident we're in a space yet where we see, um, you know, a real pushback against this notion of, Muslims as terrorists, people might say, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't fully agree with that, but I do support protecting the nation from terrorism. And so in other ways in which I see that is, you know, the, the um, January 6th and um, the, how quick people are like, these are terrorists, these are terrorists. And, and they're not actually being called terrorists. They're being called insurgents. But um, once we start labeling more and more things, terrorists, we expand those um, tools of technology that are used to protect, quote unquote, to protect, you know, but they are used against racialized populations at a much higher rate. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking also about, you know, when what you were saying where it's, it's not like people are just being targeted because they are a threat. It's being targeted because of sort of perceived future threat or, or whatever. Um, one of, one of the things I'm also just thinking about is how, when we can't, when we don't necessarily know the extent to which the surveillance is happening because it's not, because it is so sort of disseminated what we're, what you were mentioning about all of these little signs and how there is in this, in these public spaces, so much sort of one-on-one or, you know, community on community surveillance, um, how we even sort of capture the effect of that or the consequences of that. Right. Because, you know, I don't know, I'm thinking about how there are, you know, in some communities, there are much more overt signs and symptoms of um, surveillance and carceral violence. And, but in communities like ours, in the Muslim community, where there isn't necessarily, you know, the population is also small, I mean, relatively compared to the, the population of the US, but but the what feels like the impact of the surveillance or the 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 depth of the surveillance is large. Um, I don't know. And I'm just, I'm thinking about how, how difficult it sometimes is to actually tangibly capture what is the surveillance happening. And also what are the consequences of just knowing that there is this sort of meta surveillance in the air floating around that you don't necessarily know when and how it's going to impact you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. Like, and, and that visibility is key, right? So you see, you know, uh, hyper police presence in 
and you know, um, certain neighborhoods in the United States. The visibility of that surveillance is very, is very present. And that there is, it, it feels like on some level, there's an invisibility. Um, but I think that it's important to note that these aren't the exact same, that they're both surveillance and they're both racialized, but they're different processes that are occurring, right? And there are places where they merge and there are places where, where they, you know, they don't uh, match on um, neatly to one another. And that's, that's kind of what I was sort of, you know, saying at the very beginning is that, um, you know, part of the problem that I had, and I, I'm really grateful for all the people who are doing the work right now and, and writing, you know, graduate students who are doing the work and, and other people who have written, you know, such brilliant work in the last, um, you know, 10, 15 years, but, you know, we were always trying to say we're always. You know, this is something about like we can critique about sociology and comparisons that you have to match it onto another system of oppression for it to be a, an oppressive system, you know, and that doesn't work always because you have to contextualize it. And so, you know, when you're talking about like Muslim surveillance, it's different for different populations, though, right? So for a refugee, like some in Boston, the Boston Somalian population was targeted under this CBE grant by local law enforcement, by the local Boston Police Department. So here's an immigrant, uh, you know, Somalian immigrant population with, you know, second generation involved, that they're being targeted under this notion of violent extremism, you know, radicalization, that the police department was um, doing community policing. Uh, of this population. So that's a place in where you're seeing kind of both the, you know, the Boston Police Department, you know, getting a federal grant to, you know, sort of watch out for radicalization or whatever. But if you're talking about like, you know, um, for example, what Louise Kankar and, and you know, even Mustafa, Mustafa Bayoumi and all these other people were, you know, have noted is that, um, you know, mosques are spaces where there's been hyper surveillance that people are aware of it, that the FBI has been in the mosques, you know, or, or visiting people at their homes and questioning them. So the, you know, FBI versus, you know, local police departments like um, surveilling neighborhoods, it, it is a, di- you know, we can see some differences there in the ways in which different Muslim populations are targeted. And there's a good film. I don't know if you've seen it, the, um, feeling of being watched. It's it's actually a, a really interesting um, documentary where this um, I believe she's a reporter. She she uh, you know she files a request for uh, under the Freedom of Information um, Act, and she finds out how much she's been surveilled by the FBI by requesting um, that. And so it wasn't in that it wasn't super visible in her, but but she felt it and she knew it because Muslim populations know since 9-11 that the surveillance by the state has, has increased. And then um, she got to see how much they had actually been surveilling her and her family. Wow. Uh, That's terrifying. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, we'll definitely watch that. I I hadn't heard of it, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I, I want to talk about sort of current projects and stuff real quick. But before that, um, you've touched on gender and sort of gender differences in how racialization and surveillance is happening to the Muslim community. Um, but I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit more about where and how gender fits into this conversation. 
Yeah, no. Yeah, I don't think I quite answered that. Sorry. I go off sometimes. But, <laughs> no, no, um, it's been great. <laughs> so I, I will say that I just don't think you can study race without looking at the intersections of gender, you know, class, sexual orientation, all these things really matter. And so to, you know, this was the other thing that, you know, I was sort of kind of trying to write about um, is how we can't, we can't ignore the gender differences in terms of race and racism. Um, so f- what I found was that for, you know, Muslim women who wear the hijab, they are treated in, in different ways and they're racialized in different ways from Muslim men. And certainly, you know, Edward Said and, and his work in Orientalism really touches on this, how, you know, the, the notion, we've seen this historically, the notions of Muslim women as, you know, being both um, in threat from Muslim men, you know, uh, all, needing saving and all these things. And, uh, but what I found was that Muslim women, you know, are are treated in different ways. They're racialized in different ways than Muslim men. So even in the airport, they never told me they were on a list. And certainly this could have changed since, you know, in the last, uh, you know, 10 years, eight years since I did a lot of these interviews, but that they, they didn't, they weren't on the list. They weren't saying my ticket had four S's on it, but for the women who wore the hijab, they were stopped and searched um, at the security gate. And this was pre-body scanners. So they were going through metal detectors. And so Muslim women in public spaces who wear the hijab were targeted as being a cultural threat or transgressing cultural norms. They, they were told they were you know, you don't have to wear this in America, you're free here. And, you know, I was born in America, I, I chose, you know, this is my choice, I'm exhibiting my, my freedom here. And so the ways in which Muslim women are um, targeted is very different um, than the ways that Muslim men are targeted. And we have to pay attention to this. And um, we have to always note that they're different um, contexts and processes and, and policies that have an impact on on women who are racialized than men. And so it's just to say, let's be a little bit more nuanced in the way we're studying race and racism and not coming up with a one size fits all because it doesn't operate like that. That's not to say that I didn't have examples of Muslim women who were visited by the FBI, but it occurred in a different context sometimes than the Muslim men, right? So I had a Muslim woman who was, you know, returning, she was, where's the hijab? She was, you know, right after 9-11 was returning Pakistani clothes. You know, if you, if you're Pakistani and you wear any Pakistani clothes, you know, there is not a store in every town selling Pakistani clothes. So you're, you're getting it from Pakistan, you're getting clothes. And then if they don't fit or you don't like them, you're mailing them back. And she took a package to mail back Pakistani clothes. And somebody just saw her with a box and um, called the FBI and said, I, I, somebody was suspicious mailing a box and the FBI shows up at her house. Now that's an example of how I saw more men, you know, being targeted at, as the, as a real security threat versus women. But for the most part, what women were telling me is that they were approached for supporting misogyny by wearing, um, wearing the hijab or being told that, you know, they're not free. And, and also, so this, there's this saving need to save you, but on the flip side, there was also violence that they, that, you know, that they were under potential threats of violence because, um, you know, they go to the grocery store and wearing the hijab and, you know, I had two cases of war, white men started screaming at them. And so, you know, certainly we see this right now. 
um, that Muslim women are, are put in these different um, positions um, because of their um, identity as women and, and Muslim. Um, so I just think it's really important that we don't flatten these experiences. Um, and I realize that even just saying Muslim, that Muslims are diverse and all this, but it's, you know, it's really important to get as much nuance as possible in, in, in our understandings and gender and race you know, race is not, it, it is gendered. You have to look at the gendered um, ways in which people are racialized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, this is just reminding me that we've been, um, we pushed to get Patricia Hill Collins on uh, our, our theory uh, syllabi in my, in my program, um, specifically because we wanted to be thinking much more about, um, you know, intersectionality and, you know, what it meant, you know, thinking about so the experiences of black women and, um, and having, having more of that in the kind of theoretical space. So, but and yeah, it's, uh, you know, I got to tell you, it's, it's really, uh, I, I sympathize with that sort of, because, you know, what you'll find is that once you're out of, you know, pro- grad programs, that that's when you start to do all of the reading that you weren't, you weren't, you know, you didn't have in your curriculum or whatever. And there's so much out there. There's so much rich work out there. And, you know, it's, it's a shame. We, we really need to, as um, programs be, be really thinking about like the fact that, you know, even historically, there've always been scholars who've been looking at um, race and gender and, and they're, you just, it's sad when you have to, like I did, you know, I had to discover a lot of that, um, after the fact, which is why it took me a little bit of time to, to, to get the book out. Yeah, no, but I think I, I mean, I also appreciate just your sort of candidness with that and being, and being also willing to have distance from the book and be able to say, you know, there are things that I wrote that like my thinking has evolved and I'm, my thinking is constantly evolving. And I think being able to maintain that and, um, and share that is also really valuable. Yeah, it's impossible. You you will, you know, I think that's the thing. You're always growing, you're always reading, you're always, you know, and then you're you're recognizing it. And so even with my next few projects, I'm sure once I write them in, you know, five years out, I'll be like, oh, I need to, you know, I'm rethinking these things too. So um Yeah, absolutely. wait, so will you tell us a little bit about yeah. your next projects or what you're working on now? Yeah. So I am doing, I'm working on two projects. Um, one is I'm looking at the global racialization of Muslims. So I'm working with, on this with a grad student at Virginia Tech, Inash Islam, and a colleague of mine, Steve Garner, um, who's in the UK. And so we're looking at how the global war on terror has has further, produ- you know, racialized Muslims in different contexts. So looking at the United States, the UK, China, and India, and kind of really complicating notions about race because the way we constantly think about race and racism is the West and the East or the West and the rest. And um, how do places like China take this notion of the racialized Muslim? And it's not to say that that, that starts, you know, these racialized experiences, They there's a history there, right? It's a different history, but that the global war on terror has um, allowed for Muslims to be racialized, this language, it's it's used to justify oppression of Muslims in different spaces, even where, you know, spaces where, you know, you're not talking about a white and, you know, um, black or brown or other, you know, um, racial differences, those populations. So 
we're working on that. And the second project I'm working on is with a colleague of mine at Simmons, Aaron Rosenthal. He's in the political science department and we're interviewing black and immigrant Muslims. So we're, that's where this book, you know, every time I, I, I give a talk, where are black Muslims? Why aren't you talking about black Muslims? And so certainly that was, you know, something that I recognized you know, was not in there. And so we're, t- we're talking about their experiences with surveillance and policing. And for African-American Muslims in just a few interviews we've done so far, there are differences, you know? And so I'm trying to really look at, you know, where are their similarities in terms of the war on terror and surveillance and where are their differences when you're um, African-American and Muslim. And Black immigrants, you know, we haven't done as many interviews there, but, um, you know, we're just looking at how we're, um, how are they surveilled and, and how, what impact is that having on their lives? Wow. These sound so exciting. Um, and I can't wait to read about them one day and have you back on the podcast to talk about them. Well, one day we'll be talking about your work and I'm excited <laughs> about your work. And so you've got to tell, you know, me about your work. And so that, um, I, you know, I'm going to, have you out to talk about your work. So that's what's going to Oh, man. If I could ever finish it. Um, no. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I mean, and so much of it is, I, you know, I've been thinking about a lot of these, a lot of the things that we've talked about today and and um, and sort of how do we think about 9-11 and the shifts uh, and, and thinking about really this intersection of race and religion and um, some of the consequences uh, on, on health. But... Um, but I look forward to talking to you about it more at a later date when I have more done. (laughs) Sounds good. Um, So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. This was, this was awesome. I'm really glad I got to talk to you about this and that we got to um, share some of these ideas and get them out there. Well, I, it's been an honor. It's such an honor when anyone even, you know, looks at the book, um, (laughs) it takes the time and, and I just really appreciate you um, inviting me here. It's been a real honor and pleasure to talk with you today. No, thank you for taking the time um, and having this awesome conversation.